The healthcare sector has been in the bullseye for ransomware attacks in recent months. But what can healthcare entities and their business associates do to better prepare to defend against and mitigate those attacks? I'm Marianne Kolbesak McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with John Paranti, a security risk advisor at ISACA, and John is also president of enterprise risk management consulting firm IP Architects LLC. John will be discussing some of the steps that healthcare entities and other organizations can take to better prepare for and respond to ransomware attacks. So now, John, as I said, we've been seeing a spike in the number of reports that we see in recent months about hospitals and other healthcare organizations being hit with ransomware attacks. Very briefly, what do you attribute to this upswing in these attacks on the healthcare sector? Well, what I'd say is that healthcare is an ideal target as an organization who are likely to pay individuals and adversaries who are actually carrying out the ransomware attacks because the impacts of the ransomware, especially cryptographically-based ransomware that are affecting these organizations, are immediately understood and, and well-known. And unfortunately, in some cases, healthcare institutions aren't as well-prepared as some other more mature organizations might be from an IT perspective and from a business resiliency perspective to handle or repel a ransomware attack. So now, John, what steps can hospitals and other healthcare organizations take in advance to avoid becoming a victim of ransomware? Well, many ransomware attacks today are, are attributed to the concept of using encryption to encrypt data and to make data unavailable locally and on systems without the presence of a key or encryption key, which is what the ransom, once paid, is provided. So one of the first things that we always suggest at ISACA for uh, health organizations is that they clearly conduct a threat and vulnerability analysis of their environment to understand the high likelihood and high impact areas that would, would be affected if they were to be affected by a ransomware attack. So essentially, we suggest that they understand what are the weak points. Where are the weak areas? Where are the challenges? And how might they be exploited by a ransomware attack? What are the scenarios? What are the activities? What are the knowledge and tools that the adversary would need to have in order to successfully carry out that attack? So then they could then understand what defenses they could build for themselves. In many cases, one of the primary defenses that we suggest for these type situations are having good backups. And those backups need to be kept in such a way that they aren't easily accessed by ransomware tools or ransomware attackers who actually seek them out now. As you look in the newer revelations and generations of attack concepts and tools that are out there, it actually looks for synchronized backups. So an adversary might actually implant the ransomware code and the ransomware tools into systems for a long window of time, at least 90 days, to file standard IT cycles for backups and, and things of that nature so they can make sure that their code is installed in all the backups and all the systems so that time of restoration they can re-attack those systems. So we've got to be very careful in our backup strategies and very careful in our backup solutions that in real-time backups or in delayed backup scenarios like tapes or off-site systems um, that we're checking the integrity of the data prior to actually backing up, not just backing up, but ensuring that only things we're backing up are good things, the things that we know of, that we're comfortable with, that are data elements that are useful to our cause and not things that can cause negative behaviors or negative outcomes in the future. Now, often we hear reports that the first sign that an organization notices that they've actually been hit with a ransomware attack is getting a computer screen message that says they've been attacked. 
Are there any other telltale signs that the healthcare industry and other organizations should be looking for to help stop an imminent attack or to, to detect an attack sooner? Anything that organizations should be looking for that you think is often missed? Yes, it's a great question. So there are capabilities and techniques that we can do to identify when something new has been introduced in the systems or in the data sets or data stores that were unintended to be there. And we call these file integrity monitoring solutions that are essentially using cryptographic capabilities of their own to, to identify what is the appropriate files and appropriate data to be in an environment and what's not. So you're comparing what is actually on a system to a what we call a golden master or a uh, controlled template. So these are the, the applications and systems that should be present and resident on a system. In the current state of technology, we have the ability to run these tools fairly uh, real-time and fairly often if we choose to, especially in areas and systems where we don't expect a lot of change. Now, that's not always a possible scenario in, in situations with end-user laptops and desktops and devices where we might experience a certain degree of change in the normal practice. But for servers and for data stores and for areas where we have critical information and critical data sets, if we're following very good change management procedures and very good IT uh, hygiene procedures, we should always understand exactly what is in the environment and what should be in the environment. And if something is introduced in the environment that was not supposed to be there for some reason, we can immediately identify and quarantine that and try to limit its impact. Do you have any tips for organizations in determining whether they're in the beginning or at the end of an attack, how long this incident might have been going on? Well, the, as you properly stated earlier, the, often the first time that somebody understands they're under this type of attack is when they're notified by the adversary or a screen pops up on their computer screen saying they no longer have access to the files or the systems or the capabilities. Um, now, one technique that you can follow as an organization is to quickly fingerprint the type of code or the type of data that was used and have good logs and good uh, visibility systems and monitoring systems in place that can monitor for fingerprinting of these systems and look around other systems. So once I understand what the bad code looks like, once I understand what the behavior looks like, uh, I can quickly start looking to see where else might I be able to be, be, see the code either trying to turn itself on, trying to activate, or trying to propagate. And at those points of propagation, I can quickly start trying to filter out different network segments, different data elements, essentially start putting in blocks and gates to limit the, the we call it sprawl, or limit the distribution factor of the ransomware code so that it can no longer uh, take action. I also would immediately uh, take off those systems to offline status from networks and things of that nature so they're quarantined as quickly as possible and their backups cannot be affected negatively, nor can systems that they're using synchronized to or network connections to be affected any longer. Now, you had mentioned earlier that some healthcare organizations may be more willing to pay, and as we know, law enforcement advises against organizations paying a ransom to attackers because, for one thing, there's no guarantee that they're going to get their data back either way. But at what point do you think a hospital or healthcare organization needs to consider paying a ransom? And if an organization does decide to bite the bullet and actually pay the ransom, what do they need to do? So the decision to pay or not to pay needs to be based on defendable analysis and not emotion. So the first the gut reaction by most business leaders and most individuals when they're told that their systems are being held hostage or being held for ransom is really a personal attack. It's not a technology conversation at that point. It's an attack against their ethics and values. It's a test of their will. And often the first reaction will be an emotional one that says, I won't pay. We should not pay. 
It should not be something we should do. If we do pay, we may be opening ourselves up to re-victimization or becoming victims in the future from other people who now know we will pay. This is what we call the payment conundrum. But at the end of the day, this becomes more of a risk management conversation than it becomes a technology conversation, especially if you're talking about the use of ransomware that includes encryption solutions or using strong cryptography, where the opportunity for the targeted organization or the situation that's evolved will most likely not be solved through some technology or some capability. So now we have to ask ourselves, what are the business impacts of not paying? What is going to be the cost of recovery? And what's the total cost of recovery? Not just technology, but as in the case of healthcare situations, we often see lack of performance, uh, lack of patient care capabilities, efficiency in patient care. If we start having material impacts to our organization, we may find that our only option is to move to a pay model. Now, there's no guarantee that by paying, you're actually going to get the material back or the keys back, although in many cases this does happen. Because if you think about it from the adversary's position, if they don't get the money, then there's no value in maintaining the keys. There's no value in the situation. There's nothing else they can do. Um, so they're often open to negotiation. They're often often open to allowing for lower payments than originally asked for because some payment is better than no payment. Since they actually haven't really breached the data in any way, they haven't compromised the data in such a way that they can exploit it for monetary value, all they've essentially done is done an attack of availability against the target. So often the guidance that we give at ISACA is not to, to quickly move the model of saying pay or not pay or not essentially understanding the implications of what it means to pay or not pay, but this has to be rolled up as a risk management conversation that is thought through very clearly and very definitively of what our options are. Because in some cases we have good backups, and if those good backups will meet our recovery time and recovery point objectives, which allow us to get back online, provide the care that we need to in the timely manner we need to, then we probably shouldn't pay. But if we're going to be in a longer stretch, we're essentially going to have to restart the clock, re-input all kinds of data, reset systems, reset environments. The impacts to our ability to provide services may be severely limited, and the cost of analysis associated with that may be exponentially larger than paying the initial fee. When these attacks happen, often the ransom is to be paid in Bitcoin, which is hard to trace. Do you have any advice for healthcare organizations that decide they have no other choice but to pay, but to do so in a way that could help law enforcement track these criminals down? Well, as you properly said, the, the common payment method today is through Bitcoin, and Bitcoin is a very difficult uh, thing to trace. If you choose to pay, and if that is a decision that your, your organization decides is appropriate for it in the situation, it's often recommended that you do involve law enforcement as part of the process so at least they understand where the payment's being made and they may be able to correlate that payment with other uh, ransomware activities in other situations or have it as a mechanism to trace information. Chances are the end organization, the healthcare organization we're speaking about, or those targeted organizations, they themselves probably have little ability to enable traces. They'll have little ability to enable some model of where the, the data, uh, the, the monies are going and the funds are going. But one trick that I often expect or try as a first-time method is instead of giving a lot of money or a significant amount of funds to the organization who's receiving this, give some very small amount as a test. So maybe you give one Bitcoin versus many Bitcoins to the address that's provided. Because in some cases what we've found is that this is an automated process. The server actually where you're sending the information to understands that Bitcoin's been received into an account, 
Uh, that account is uniquely identified back to the organization that was targeted. That's associated with the private encryption key that will eventually be transmitted back to the organization. There isn't often a human in the middle. So if there's no human in the middle, they may have only set up the code to detect that a Bitcoin was received. So go ahead and start releasing the key. You may not be able to trace the, the funds at that, at that point, but you might find that you, you pay significantly less than the original request. John, as these ransomware attacks become more sophisticated, how can organizations detect and prevent their data from also being copied or exfiltrated as part of the attack on top of encrypting the data? Most ransomware attacks are more interested or more associated with the idea of attack availability, not an attack of compromise. So if you are subject to a multifaceted attack where not only are you trying to attack against availability, but also extract data and compromise that data and exploit that data in some sort of uh, public domain fashion or or some underground, uh, a dark web mart, then that's a different style and an impact of attack altogether. Um, And organizations need to be prepared in a way to to strengthen their defenses from those types of attacks in general. So again, at ISACA, we fall back to the concept of that importance of that threat and vulnerability analysis. You need to understand how you will be compromised before you're compromised. You need to understand what the adversaries would do and can do and where you're weak so you can de- develop countermeasure plans and countermeasure capabilities to try and mitigate those risks. But a multifaceted attack is not the typical scenario you're seeing in ransomware-situated scenarios at the moment, but it is very likely, and we do have evidence of that occurring in the past. Typically associated with more sophisticated adversaries, typically associated with situations where there's a very obvious compromise going on, a very obvious situation, and this is the last stage of the attack, not the first stage of the attack where the ransomware is put in. The adversary is kind of getting the best of both worlds. They not only are going to try and monetize from you to get access to that data again, but they're also going to use your data to be monetized through data breach scenarios. And the preparations should be done in parallel. How would you prepare for a data breach that didn't include ransomware, and then how would you complement that with ransomware defenses? There are really two different threat models that you would prepare for, and then in the, in the sequence of events that you would apply for incident response, you would bring those two plans together and carry them out in parallel to ensure that both aspects of the attack are being countered. John, any other predictions when it comes to ransomware and how these attacks could evolve, and do you think we'll be seeing more healthcare entities being hit by these attacks? And if so, what should these entities be doing to prepare for this next generation of ransomware attacks? Well, the first thing we always have to remember is if we have a motivated and capable adversary community, they will always increase their sophistication and capabilities. So these attacks have been seen as being very popular and very capable, and we're actually seeing more of them because the tools and capabilities that are being built to carry them out are actually being sold. So no longer do I need to have a very smart set of uh, application developers or uh, hackers and adversaries who understand how to build ransomware and how to build ransomware infrastructure. Um, I expect we'll see in the very short future uh, ransomware for hire scenarios where you can actually buy ransomware kits and and, uh, ransomware networks where you can process payments and have key management occur. And essentially, you as the adversary or the hacker only need to pay this organization for the use of their systems and then tell them where you want them to target and tell them where you want to go. Uh, that's a, a very likely a, a solution that we, uh, situation that we see occurring, uh, only because previously we've seen other situations like that with different networks for denial of service attacks and botnets being for sale and things of that nature. So the exploitation will continue, and as more payments are made and as more payments are being recognized as being made and being more public, the more you'll see this carried out. 
because it really is a very easy way for someone to monetize this activity without having to have a lot of server space or a lot of server time to store a lot of uh, breach data. The impacts are not investigated to the same level and degree of scrutiny as our data breach attacks where the actual data has been compromised by law enforcement in its current state. So the adversary community looks at this as more of a slightly safer uh, avenue of carrying out their attacks at a lot, much lower cost with a higher profit margin associated with it. So there's no question this will continue. In the healthcare space, since the fact that they need their data in real time, since they are not always as sophisticated in their defenses and their technologies as are some other institutions like financial institutions and high-tech institutions uh, at this time, they're a likely target because they'll immediately embrace the idea that they have to get their systems back, they have to get their data back, and they'll go to the, to the fastest path of success. Um, and that fastest path to success is just about dialing in what is the right amount of money or right around Bitcoin to ask. And that's where I think the adversary community is really tuning into right now, saying what is that standard of payment or that value of payment that will someone will just pay without thinking very much about it. And that's where I think we see the evolution going more than anything else, is the adversary community dialing into saying, well, will they pay $1,000 or a $1 million? And then it just becomes a question of volume and volume of target. And, John, besides the healthcare sector, is there another sector or other sectors that also seem to be prone to paying and getting hit because maybe they're not prepared, they're, they need their data in real time, any other sectors that are as vulnerable as the healthcare sector? Any sector that has real value and real care of their data and needs that data to be accessible in short windows or real time in order to carry out their business activities is a potential high-value target for an adversary who's going to use a ransomware scenario. Thanks, John. I've been speaking to John Pyranti. I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.